0: Welcome to the Carecast.
1: Welcome everybody to another Carecast and we are continuing in our new normal series, asking the big questions about what society is going to look like following the coronavirus pandemic. And in recent weeks and possibly even months by now, in the ongoing saga of COVID-19, the focus has somewhat shifted more recently away from the daily death count and towards lifting and easing restrictions. And the lockdown that we all had to go through was exceptional and indiscriminate. But if you live in Preston, or you're watching from Leicester, or you are joining from other parts of Greater Manchester, in recent weeks, you may have experienced a localised lockdown. And this, it seems, is going to be all part of the new normal. This is the whack-a-mole strategy that our beloved Prime Minister loves to herald. But what does this all mean? What are the issues? What are the concerns? What does track and trace involve? What about our data? How will this work? Is it possible that the government can actually come up with a workable way of bringing some kind of normality back to our lives? You may have been to the pub in recent weeks and you may have had to give over your personal information, phone number, name, possibly your email as well. How do you feel about that? Is that something that will just carry on forever more? Well, to discuss all of this, I'm delighted that on this week's Carecast, we have once again Matt James and also Ian Burrell as well. Gentlemen, welcome to the Carecast.
0: It's yes, great to be with you.
1: Wonderful. Um, Matt, could you just uh, tell our watchers, listeners, everyone on the podcast, uh, what it is that you do um, and uh, your particular interest in the subject matter
0: yeah, thanks, James. Uh, well, I've got about 10 years experience, 10 or, 10 or so plus years experience in bioethics and uh, public policy. Uh, I currently work uh, for p- kind of part of the week at uh, St Moe's University, London, where I'm Associate Professor in Bioethics and Medical Law. Uh, the other part of my time is as a consultant to various think tanks, uh, including care, on bioethics issues. And so I've particularly had an interest over the last uh, 10 or so years about new emerging technologies and the ethical, social, and policy implications surrounding those uh, technologies.
1: Brilliant. And Ian, how about yourself? What is it that you have done throughout your career and are currently doing?
2: Well, I'm a retired um, clinical photographer and ran a large department, uh, a medical illustration, medical illustration department at a large London teaching hospital. And uh, in the mid-1980s, we all became concerned about consent to clinical photography and what it meant um, because at the time, nobody had ownership. We still don't have ownership in this country of our personal images. And I became increasingly concerned about how personal images were being used in hospitals by uh, doctors who would like to use mobile phones when they came on board. Uh, when the cell phone became a camera, it became a huge risk in healthcare. Um, and so on, and um, we developed policies uh, that were de facto policies in hospitals to, um, uh, to uh, guide responsible practice. Anyhow, um, long story short, uh, that led eventually to a, a need to get to grips with some uh, bioethical questions, I wanted to have some, uh, some arrows that I could fire from my own, um, quiver. I couldn't just rely on our medical ethicists at, at the hospital to, to answer all manner of questions about consent to photography. And that led me to some areas where I did the MA in bioethics, um, in the, uh, in 2004 through to five or three to five. And, um, anyway, subsequently and then consequently, I retired, and I got more interested in the the need for uh, maintain you know understanding privacy law and so on and so forth. This led to an MPhil uh, where I discussed the uh, uh, the the issues of confidentiality and privacy with face recognition and personal identifiable images and uh, there 's a book out there which may we may draw on later, um, but the important thing is that Images have become so um, uh, so uh, abundant that we don't have any control. We, uh, Facebook, you know, you give put an image up, selfies, all of these things. What happens to those images? And images today are data. And today we're talking about data and what that means. Is it, just, in the past, data was just name and address, bank account details. It was just alphanumeric but today we have images and we have DNA and we have biometrics and so on and so forth. And, and we're becoming, we have become compulsorily visible. Um, and that's where, I, where my concern is with the track and trace. Is this just another step towards uh, a society where we do not have any control of how visible we are uh, to a, to, um, to in terms of what goes on with the big data? And the centralized uh, activities that go on with government and uh, Google or Apple or any of the other big tech um, um, uh, behemoths that are out there, we don't know what's happening to our data. And this just seems to me another step in the direction where we lose control. It's put up as an idea of consent. Um, the, uh, uh, The GDPR ask for consent to biometrics, but it doesn't say you must give consent to photography. It's the one area where face recognition technology is not required to give consent to. Uh, other biometrics it is, it is, fingerprints, eye scans, all that, kind of, those sorts of things. And we are in this, um, we're in an area of unknowns. Mm. We know we're learning what the knowns are, but we also know where the unknowns are because of the consequences. Just look how often the government has changed the goal, moved the goalposts with coronavirus and how it's locked down and it's not locked down. And it's locked down in one place and not in another. It's schools opening. And oh, no, it isn't. It's not schools opening. It's, it's very much uh, fly by the, the seat of your pants, so to speak,
1: uh, approach to this, uh, because we just don't know what the consequences are. Fly by the seat of your pants approach is exactly the approach we like to take on this podcast as well, so um, I have some <laughs> some sympathy with uh, with the government on that let's just let's just establish as we get into this discussion and and here's the treat for all of you watching and listening in that i get I get the slight feeling that perhaps Matt, you're not quite as suspicious about the use of biometrics and uh, digital technology to create this uh, this brave new world of allowing people to move around and have their freedom. Am I right?
0: So certainly for the purpose of debate this afternoon, oh, this morning rather, I'm quite open to discuss the, the relative benefits, uh, mindful of also the disadvantages and, and the, the challenges that that face. So I think it's a bit of a trade-off, but we'll, we'll see how much of a trade-off as the conversation proceeds.
1: Absolutely. It's a gloriously diplomatic answer that you've just given here, Matt, <laughs> and it is my job in the course of this podcast to, to bring out the inner rage within you. That's going to be my, my
0: task. Okay.
2: Good. I, good. Wanted, well, I wanted to polarize it a little bit so that we've got some clear. Indeed. Uh, yes. You yeah. know, kind of, uh, what's the word I want? Some light between the two. Uh, Absolutely. View.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, they've been super collegiate on previous podcasts, Ian. So you've yeah. brought a bit of heat, which is great. Yeah. I, I think my
2: main concern is I don't, I, 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 we know in China they have social credits. And are we heading in that direction mm. um, uh, drip by drip? Mm. Um, you know, so that we're not, you know, so it becomes a sort of passive uh, acquiescence to a kind of social credit. We've talked about digital What's certificate. The, what is a social credit? What, what does that refer to? Well, in China, if, you, if, you have, if you're not critical of the government um, and you're, you, you, are, you stay out of trouble, you are allowed the best schools, you might get to a better university, you might have access to better... Uh, health care, or where to live, and so on. And China has become a a bit of a petri dish for uh, surveillance. The the West is looking in on how China is surveilling their population, or how the Chinese government is surveilling their population. And it isn't comfortable. Mm. And it certainly would be counter to liberal
1: democracies that we have in this, in our part of the world, it's a fascinating point, isn't it, Matt? That that in you, as you look around the world, you look at how nations have dealt with the issue of coronavirus. That there has been a a huge state uh, run and managed involvement in the lives of its citizens here in the West, the likes of which you know we've not seen since possibly the Second World War. Um, whereas in some other countries around the world, there's a greater degree of normality about that, would you say? A greater ease of the state being more involved in in the lives of its citizens?
0: Yes, like New Zealand, for example, it springs to mind that they've actually not pursued any kind of real high, not even high tech, but any technological solutions for track and trace and and monitoring of their citizens. They've kind of very much focused on manual tracing. And I think perhaps the evidence speaks for itself that New Zealand is kind of uh, really kind of leading the way in in, in an effective strategy for dealing with this. Um, China, as Ian's already mentioned, has taken a very kind of more hands-on approach to things, a more pervasive approach to tackling the pandemic, where they've used uh, QR codes, those kind of odd little kind of square uh, um Square logos made up of even little squares that you can scan with your mobile phone, smart tags, uh, otherwise known as, um, to indicate a, a citizen's health status to control their movements, where they're allowed to go, where they're allowed to go on public transport, and so forth. So, very effective, but zero privacy in terms of the individual. And so, I think that points to the one of the keys to all of this. It's empowering. Citizens to prove their attributes about themselves without revealing their individual information. And I think it comes down to uh, an issue between identification versus authorization, which I think underpins much of the privacy surveillance conversation. What are we actually looking for? Are we looking to identify people so they can gain access? or is it a case of just authorization that they're authorized to involve themselves in a particular act and it's it's a nice distinction to make somewhat more difficult to perhaps apply in in, in practice but deferring and well not deferring but the de- discerning and identifying whether we are after authorization versus identification i think is a key uh, question to ask ourselves
2: yeah. And I think, uh, Matt, the, the, if, we, if we go for those, those two aspects, one would lead to a kind of apartheid. You would be, uh, you know, in terms of the um, identification, if you weren't identified, you might be seen as an outsider. Um, you might be seen as somebody um, not, uh, uh, that somebody who is against the public health of your neighbor. And, in a way, it, it kind of um, it associates this sort of util- kind of utilitarianism where you don 't yours seem to be causing harm, sure, and if we take that uh, that idea that um, we're, we're, the freedom we have is only freedom where we don 't cause someone else 's harm i mean let 's face it that 's why we have traffic lights uh, you know we, we stop at red lights, hopefully, so we don 't go crashing into people who are have access in the opposite direction Um, and so if we're not careful we if if we're too um authoritarian we could find ourselves um not by not we consent to stop at red lights because we know it's good for us however if we are restricted in a way that upsets our um our own values our own set of of understanding who we are as a person, um, and our own uh, individuality, are we then seen as an outsider? If we say, my right is better, is greater than yours, and are we then talking about rights, and whose rights? Uh, And I think we have a good example here of the of the, uh, the, the debate going on about schools returning. Children have parents. Parents need to work. How can you have children still at home if parents need to work and the, the economy needs to to keep going? So you've got those tensions already beginning to emerge, and if we're not careful, this will just overflow into a health scenario, where if you don't have something that gives you that identifies you or authentic or authorizes you, um, you you're then going to be. You're, you are then going to have restrictions placed on us, or on you, uh, and that will either be, you won't be able to have access to, I don't know, the pub, the church, uh, the swimming pool, or any of the other social, even workplaces. So where, where are we going to draw the line? This is
1: the great... Uh, It's the great challenge, isn't it? Because if you just picking up on this idea of of the tension that can be created if people stand on their rights, think about face masks, for example. There is documented examples on social media of uh, individuals who choose not to wear a face mask um, because they have read uh, possibly uh, scientific papers, or perhaps I'm giving them a bit too much credit. Possibly they have read on Twitter that there are scientific papers out there that question the effectiveness, the efficacy of face masks. And yet these these clips tend to be uh, members of the public who are wearing a face mask uh, shouting abuse and criticising and calling into question the honour of someone who's not. I haven't yet seen any uh, social media evidence of it being the other way round. And so that that sense of divide, that's... That's already present in our society, isn't it, Matt? Like the face mask thing is, is already causing this debate to take place of, of rights and what duty do I have towards the public health?
0: Your rights, responsibilities, duties and so forth. It is interesting, isn't it? I know George Orwell's book 1984 often gets kind of banded around about this point in privacy and uh, surveillance conversations. And obviously it was a, a satirical, uh, a very powerful kind of um, protest novel against, at that point, totalitarianism uh, and for what he believed uh, was a call to arms for a more liberal society. And yet actually, when you think about it, it, it would appear it was the very nature of our modern liberal society in which we live in today that seems to be feeding this spread of wanting to track trace and and uh, uh, monitor our movements and i suppose liberal societies like totalitarian unlike totalitarian ones are, are diverse um some sometimes accidentally but sometimes intentionally we want to be kind of diverse and embrace diversity but actually The flip side of that diversity is unfamiliarity and there's so many of us, so many of us doing all of our different things that there is diversity and there's unfamiliarity in that. So a diverse society is one which we could spend much of our time amongst strangers and a fact that's compounded by our ability to travel places and to move around and also different ethical attitudes perspectives on life so a basic observation that humans want to trust uh, the unfamiliar less than the familiar in a time of kind of pandemic where an awful lot is it's almost like a crunch time where everything is very unfamiliar around us we want A certain degree of certainty, and we want to be able to trust, and indeed with the applications of technology, many institutions are calling that anything that the government brings about in terms of technology and being introduced to track and trace must be to preserve that element of trust between governments and society. And yet it it begins to be this trade-off of, well, actually, we trust more of what we are familiar with, but actually, in the name of a more liberal society, is it actually causing more unfamiliarity? And there's a great interplay of of different factors here.
2: And the the other thing is that there's the issue of consent. Um, And I I, I happen to... uh, to, for want of a uh, coin, you know, for want of a phrase, there is, we talk about explicit consent, but there is also passive consent. And passive consent isn't the same as acquiescence. Passive consent says, well, I, I guess I must. Whereas acquiescence is when you put your arm out for a blood test, you don't sign the thing, but you're very, the very act of putting your arm out for somebody to, to uh, for a phlebotomist to take blood from your arm is seen as consent or acquiescence. But passive consent is this sort of slow drift to a sort of a change in our attitude. It's a sort of, well, I can't, uh, well, do I? And it's, it's all that sort of a kind of nonchalance sort of set. And um, and I can't help thinking that we're, we're moving towards uh, um, a position in, a, in certainly in healthcare where we're, we're expected To give consent for how how our data is used. Another example of this is is the data that that we are being asked to consent to for health, for research purposes. And yet we have got to provide who we are, we've got to consent by giving the the, um, NHSX or whoever, NHS Digital, our permission to look at our records so that they can pass them on to to Google others. And so there is some very, we're, we're creating some very strange bedfellows here when it comes to consent or and different types of consent. And the GDPR and the Data Protection Act 2018 um, are, are, provide some kind of legal framework, but they're showing up. The, it, it also demonstrates how inadequate they are uh, as a result of corona and where consent is beginning to become... Um, a, a sort of a de facto approach where you're kind of expected if you don't give your consent, then you're seen as somebody who isn't, you know, you're a bit like a leper. You, you shouldn't be around in society if you don't give your consent. There's that issue of if you've got nothing to hide, why not? Well, it's not about nothing to hide. and And it's going to polarise society whether you have a faith or not. There are those in the, uh, a good, a typical example now is the anti vaxxers. There are people who are Christians and other faith groups who are against the vaccine, and there are others who don't have any faith at all, uh, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the religious sense of the word. Um, and they are, in, and we're, we're gaining kind of partnerships with people who are anti this. So we could be the, we become the anti or whatever it is that we're against. And um, the, 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 sort of the spiritual aspect of this, and depending on your eschatology, creates all sorts of uh, issues, certainly for Christians who take, a, who take notice of, of end time scenarios. Sure. And, and, and this, might not, this might be too soon to introduce this, but this is where, this is if you like the elephant in the room, uh, uh, for, for Christians who, who are concerned about end-time scenarios and, uh, and so on. And it also provides a, a platform for, for conspiracy theories as well. Uh, and so, again, we come back to these very strange, odd bedfellows that are being kind of brought together as a result of all this debate over
0: track and trace. So just to unpack a little bit of what you're saying there, Ian, because uh, yeah, it, it does, you know, all, all really good points that you're making. Surely, then, I would tend to agree with the general feeling, I think, that's coming out through the literature and media reports that some privacy infringement is going to be expected in a time like this and during a pandemic. That moving forward, though, it, we've got to demonstrate that benefit to public health to justify its deployment. So in in order to introduce some of these track-and-trace technologies and, and procedures, the, the public benefit has got to really be clearly identified and articulated for people to get on board with it, given that the starting point, I think, is that most will say, well, look... We've got to, there's got to be a degree of, uh, it includes in the title, track and trace. We've got to monitor where people are going and who they're mixing with. And that, therefore, is going to entail a degree of privacy infringement. But if the benefit of these technologies, these te- techniques, processes, can be clearly articulated and we can see, then building that relationship of trust that I've highlighted, then most people will feel that they can buy into that. Also, with the understanding that this is for a definite period of time, as opposed to we can allow our data to be accessed for for this or for the pandemic, but there's a cut-off point. Otherwise, we can see potentially down the line that data could be collected, that could be stored, and then once we are post post COVID, and the thought that everyone is carrying in their minds the days we can put COVID behind us, actually, that data could still be used against us or for us by employers to track our health behaviors and uh, and so forth so do you think that there is a level of expectation that some privacy infringement is part and parcel of the process moving forward it's how we control that or can you see a time when actually or can you expect a time when actually privacy shouldn't be infringed in, in in any shape or form
2: no, I'm not. I'm not against the idea that there will be a need for that privacy um, intrusion. Um, it's the issue, though, of where the data is held and how and for how long. And the important thing here is that we have some very good examples um, of how good. Uh, how if we take the model that is used in re- for research ethics, we know that if we for, if we're part of a if we sign up to uh, Uh, shall we say a health research project it's not for our benefit it's for the benefit of others but we also know that there will be some kind of there will be a a complete anonymization Um, they'll know that they'll use our data for the for the purpose that it's only required for and then when that research is over and it's published and whatever it is we know that that data may be archived but it won't be it won't be pseudo-anonymized, it will be anonymized. And if we if we um, adopt some of the best practice that is used in research ethic, in research and the ethics that are applied there, and the codes of practice and so on, and I'm talking codes of practice, but that need a legal framework, not just a de facto, well, you know, this is the policy, but there's no law backing it up. It's got to be a legal framework that provides that. Um, uh, that safeguard, and um, certainly in uh, you know it, it wasn 't too long ago that the government was defeated over the snoopers' charter um, regarding uh, certain surveillance uh, law and, and that was that was given a sunset clause, and it all disappeared in two thousand and sixteen Now, the legal framework is there there 's also the freedoms act that we might we must uh, um, use as a as a device for providing a framework for the data to be self-contained. And yes, it will be important, and maybe James is right, that we will need a digital certificate. But we mustn't ostracise those of us who don't have and have never had COVID or what are we going to be doing? We're going to be lining up, not for a vaccine, but for an injection to give us the virus so we can get our own antibodies, which I suppose is a bit like a vaccine. Now, I'm being facetious, but the, the, the thing is, there's got to be a legal framework that underpins the security of the data, the way the data is used, and for the length of time the data is held.
1: I wonder on this if, if from a Christian point of view as well, in recent weeks and months, for example, there has been one example of an element of the coronavirus emergency legislation that had a sunset clause attached to it that the government is already talking about extending beyond uh, the, the, the time frame in which the, the coronavirus legislation ends, and that is the, uh, the policy change which allows for a woman to take both abortion pills at home with all of the uh, attached risks that that involves. So that was supposed to be a temporary arrangement, but now the government's going to consult um, to make that a more permanent part of, 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 of the future. Now, for some Christians, that, that'll be a, a prime example of why you can't trust what the government says. So it's all very well for the government to say, we'll store your data on track and trace for X amount of time. But, but Matt, just picking up on this trust issue... Trust is a two-way thing, and for a lot of Christians, Absolutely. there is no trust in the government's words. Uh, is, it, is it not the case that the, the government would have to have a fundamental transformation if it was ever to win that trust back? So why should we then trust the government with our, with our data?
0: Well, absolutely. What's what's the old adage? uh, Trust takes years to build, but seconds to destroy. So uh, absolutely, it's a great kind of touchstone to refer to in these conversations, but uh, a little bit more messy to actually see it in practice. Um, I think all the more reason without being tried to, to pray for government, even if it's not necessarily the colour of government that we would naturally vote for, uh, or indeed <laughs> the colour of the government that we voted or thought we were voting in for some so, uh, some uh, listeners. So all the more reason to uh, to, to pray for government. But I, I think there is a massive task on our hands or on the government's hands to really rebuild that trust, because, uh, and certainly on issues of technology, because we can all... All I imagine or all can recall perhaps data breaches and uh, uh, certainly surrounding government departments of laptops being left in places and data being uh, mishandled and um, certainly not protected. So it, it, it is it's a it's a massive undertaking. But I think as many other uh, entities, institutes, either um, Lovelace Institute particularly who's looking into AI and, and data issues uh, i think they're in their very quick uh, rapid review um evidence review report on this whole issue of, of track and trace and health public health identities they're identifying look we've got to work hard with this trust issue because it really won't uh, gain traction and we won't get the um uh, we won't jump on board with the government if we haven't got that trust so it, it is a tough one and i don't have any easy answers or magic bullets i don't think i think i'd be very surprised and very dubious In my response, if people were saying, oh, we should build up trust, do A, B and C, and there we've got it. But we've got to, because I think with the examples of other countries around the world, uh, of where it goes in the other direction, we can think of China without, I only think of one, I'll go with China for now, but without singling them out entirely, where even with the issue of um, CCTV cameras and their use, Tiananmen Square, what was used to kind of monitor traffic and for public good, was then turned on the protesters that were in Tiananmen Square and then broadcast on the TVs to be able to identify them and bring them to justice. So these technologies, uh, we won't go down perhaps on this conversation on whether it's a moral technology, but uh, technologies can, can be turned against and for the people. And I think trust, therefore, is a key thing that we've got to look at building and rebuilding in these scenarios.
2: Yeah, I think I think what the one way of building trust is the government to stop being is to stop using hyperbole. Absolutely. When they said that I... the track and trace would be well beating, um, <laughs> I think many
0: people's alarms went off on that. I don't think it's going to be well beating. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly, and and we and those of us those who felt it intuitively and those computer scientists who knew it, you know, professionally. Uh, knew that that was really overstating the the um, the, the case, um, and then you lose credibility. Mm. If you if you say something is X and it's, it turns out to be a lot less than X, you are going to lose credibility, and everything the government then says afterwards is going to have to be. Uh, it, it's going to make their job harder, and it and you know and I'm not wishing to to lay blame to anybody or anything like that. But the government has got to learn to be a little bit more uh, careful about what, it, what its promises are. Mm. Yeah. It shouldn't be it, it shouldn't be doing this. It shouldn't be exaggerating the, the benefits when when they should be a little bit um, uh, careful, you know, almost conservative with a small C in how they want the thing delivered or what their I, expectations are.
1: I think this is, this is such a, a good point because I think the, the, the same thing applies to uh, – Matt, I'd be fascinated in your view on this. And we were, we're, I want us to talk about digital immunity certificates and we'll, we will get there, but this is such an interesting point. Uh, to do with uh, the government's language and the way that the government presents on this issue of coronavirus, um, I also wonder whether part of what we're seeing at the moment is quite a strong – Uh, doubling down on the fears and concerns about a second wave of the coronavirus. And so, you know, the Prime Minister says we've seen it in Europe already and we've got to be ready, it could come here, and and don't assume that it's not going to happen, that kind of thing. And then, all the while, you've got other voices who are saying, just hold on a minute, is that true? Is that the right approach? We've got this great tension between public health and the economy. If you keep scaring everybody, we're never going to get London filled again and the economy's just going to tank, and that'll cause greater excess deaths further down the line. And, and, and um, I wonder if that is another area where credibility can very easily be undermined in that for government, I think it's easier for them to, on an issue like this, take a very negative view because if they come out and say, it's all fine, don't worry, everything's going to be you know, fine, and then it's not, that's worse than if they come out and say, you've got to watch out, you've got to be careful, and then it's actually better than, than they fear. Do you, do you think that's another, another challenge for them?
0: I think so. I think it was Ian earlier on talking about unknown knowns and and the Donald Rumsfeld uh, infamous quote now that I can't uh, refer to, but unknowns knowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Um, Just Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I think there is, but... (sighs) I do think in government generally, and I can think of different coloured governments, so uh, everything from the coalition through to, to where we find ourselves now, we're, uh, we're guilty of this. Because I think we probably work with a five-year time frame. So what will, what will, what will get us into government? Uh, what will we now need to do in response to having been voted in? And what will then get us re-elected? So we're, we're working with a five-year time frame, which might seem very kind of lengthy but it isn't really in the future in terms of future and developments and some of these technologies that have far-reaching consequences i think we need to be thinking more 10 years and so we're spanning governments we're spanning we're spanning parliaments So I think acknowledging that and saying look, we've got to be thinking more long-term sometimes and switching and being able to pivot, say, like, what's the long-term implications and consequences of this and what also the short-term, and therefore how that reflects how we communicate and how we kind of set the scene for some of the decisions we're making now in readiness for the mid to the short-term. Because I I do think, I I think there's sort of one of the latest phrases from the Prime Minister was, back to normality by Christmas. I get it just adds to the catalogue of some of this hyperbole that Ian's highlighting. I don't think that is going to be the case. I think some of the early conversations I've had with you, James, on these podcasts about the future and the new normal. I think we're looking still at about three or four years for a vaccine to really be uh text- developed, tested. Approved so, uh, as being viable it does what it says on the tin so to speak and then getting people out uh, and getting um getting the injections yeah. for it uh we're in the, we're in, in this for the long haul and i don't think that message is getting out there clear enough and uh, but yeah, partly because i think, because that- I think think it's because that will kind of scare some people it might be very unsettling it might be and for all of us actually if we really take that into consideration that we could be dealing with aspects of life that we're now having to adjust to for three or four more years but i think at least let's get it out there and start to set out the parameters of where we think it's going to be and and within that we can be, we can intelligent people working in government we can articulate that in a way that says at the moment we feel these are the parameters We are in a place of an unknown territory. These could well change, but at the moment, to be fair to you, in order to build trust, we need to be setting out this is the long-term and mid-term consequences and implications of what we're facing. Ian, do you do you agree or disagree with me on I that?
2: I do, I do agree, and I think that what you say, you know, the, the idea that uh, uh, the prime minister can say this it will be over by Christmas—they said the same thing in 1914. Well, in fact, uh, uh, I read a news war report war.
0: that we were, was referring just about that. Right, in fact, the last time we uh, heard, exactly. this, it didn't end well.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, and what happened was, we uh, for four years, we uh, that war left everybody stuck in the trenches,
0: um,
2: and it was just fighting over bits of land. Now, if we take that as a, a metaphor for a linguistic kind of uh, battle between one side and the other, and the trenches are we 're all in this together because of lockdown that 's the kind of trenches we 're in. Um, we can see that there is that that description of being over by Christmas, and we knew we, 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 history tells us we were not, um, that optimism was was. Uh, completely, um, what's the word, Uh, destroyed by the time we got to Christmas, I'm sure, for those who were alive at the time, in 1914. And nobody knew when it was going to end. So what will happen here? We'll get to Christmas and it's still continuing. And nobody knows with any certainty when COVID is going to be tamed, eradicated or vaccinated against. Um, Now, there is hope. Viruses do have a way of... um, being dealt with. I mean, we live in a sort of world where there's millions of viruses. Well, I may be exaggerating. Uh, I'm not a virologist, but we, we, it's amazing how we don't catch everything. Our immune systems are amazing.
0: Hmm. We
2: don't get the flu every year, thank goodness. So we may have to live with COVID. It may be something that'll take on the place. It'll be like one of those respiratory conditions that come from time to time that we cannot escape from. And we may have to learn to live in a new reality, not a new normality or a new normal. That will be the normal in the same way that when we get the flu, some of us, we know it's the flu or a heavy cold and we we recover. And older people, some people don't. But we don't, we kind of, we have have a a relationship with viruses that makes us a little bit, We've got to be careful, we, can't, we shouldn't be complacent. Um, but we can't let the virus dictate how we, how we live. Sure. Otherwise we become a slave to, uh, to the conditions that the virus is imposing. And if we want our, if, never mind liberal society, if we just want to live, if the economy has got to survive, if schools have got to, to continue, if children and young people have got to flourish, as well as family life flourish, we have got to learn to accommodate this virus in a way that is that, that the restrictions will allow. We don't lock down with flu. And thank God there hasn't been a flu pandemic uh, since the 1920s. We have got to be mature in how we respond. And I think the governments, certainly governments in the West, have got to allow grown-ups or should we say, mature people, to think for themselves and to allow a certain level of acceptance with caring for others. I'm just conscious um, that maybe we have, uh, this is where Paul in Romans 14 may apply, where we look after our brothers and sisters, where we don't impose our rules on them because uh, we're the strong ones. And maybe that is an application of, of that uh, part in Romans in Chapter Fourteen, and we may have to learn to live that way uh, for the going forward for the foreseeable future and I think maybe this is where Christians could take the lead, where we could demonstrate that we are behaving in a responsible and credible and healthy way in every
1: sense of that word. Mm. It'd be fascinating to to see that as part of the church's role uh, as we move forward. How, how can we demonstrate to people that that yes, as you say, we're we're obedient citizens, but at the same time, we're not lived in a grip of fear because there is a there's a shed load of fear still in our society. And, and I think it is that sense of especially nowadays when and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to be twee about this, but you know. On a daily basis at the moment, there are people in our country dying of a number of other conditions that are not COVID. But we don't do daily press conferences and we don't do dramatic events to do with that. And yet that's the reality. And, and at some point, I think, Ian, you're right, at some point, surely we have to move on from this uh, short-term obsession. See, Matt, I think it's not just governments that are short-term. It's, I think society is short-term. Um, And I think the media are short-term because everything is dictated by a 24-hour news cycle. And that that feeds it, right?
0: And and as Ian was speaking, I'm thinking, well, wouldn't it be great to see um, a whole variety of newspapers carrying the kind of conversation that we've had in the last two or three minutes? Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's challenges because we mix messages. Well, actually a good shaping the conversation hosting a conversation saying that we've got to face up to the reality here folks we're getting some good and diverse opinions and perspectives on my like, life in lockdown what's beyond lockdown how is this going to affect us how we should be moving on that's the kind of conversation that is I think not necessarily difficult to host perhaps perhaps more challenging because it's causing us to to pivot, okay. What's the short term? What's the mid time What's the long term? And I think probably we do, as you're saying, James. We probably live very much, and we we feel comfortable in the short term. What will get me? What will get me through the next week, the next month? What will get us out of lockdown? And please make it maybe three or four weeks time. You know, think back to when it was all announced in March, and we were thinking June or July. When it, in the next three months, I'm thinking how long that would be. Um, I, yeah, I, I think a, a wider. Uh, more embracing conversation I think is necessary the other thing that swings to mind when we're talking about privacy and consent I know it's something certainly in the field of bioethics and one that St Mary's and other institutions I'm sure in the UK are keen to address more and more is that very often we view it bioethics as a westernized bioethics and don't necessarily take into consideration how bioethical issues are interpreted and worked out in other parts of the country. So say, for example, on privacy and consent and confidentiality, we've had students studying with us from Africa either have come over to study with us or have now since moved over and and as part of work and study have chosen to study with us. But they smile, sometimes even laugh with astonishment with how much we bang on about privacy and confidentiality in the UK. Because in Africa... It would, they say, you couldn't possibly keep it confidential that so and so down the road has got a hernia, for example. Everyone would know because that was the approach of community, of the mm-hmm. society working together, supporting one another. And actually, we wouldn't want it any other way. We would want people to know those details. Now, of course, you've got to work things out. We all are from different parts of the world. We all have our different default ways of living and working. And we need to respect that diversity. But I think that does sometimes help us in the West. Certainly, amongst those that were studying with those African students, suddenly, well, yes, we what is it that we really cherish and champion about privacy and confidentiality that we need to hold on to, and perhaps what are the other aspects we can afford to let go? Actually, there's something in being vulnerable with one another and having that sense of community that is a, a supportive mechanism that we want to see more of uh, in our in our society.
2: Well, that, that's a really good point, Matt. The idea that Community you know, in in you know, African communities and so on, but that but community speaks of something that is um, uh, uh, cohesive, something that is, if you prefer, self-contained. You know, it, we you often hear the phrase, you know, it, it takes a village to bring up a child. Sure. Um, and uh, maybe that's not true in the West any longer, but um, the, the, the fact is that there is more coherency in some societies where everybody knows each other uh, and so on. And even, you know, you often you still hear people talking about um, communities in our country where you could you wouldn't bother to lock the front door even. Uh, you know, whether that's true now I don't know but you hear people some generations ago talking about that but there was that sense of safety, trust a sense of well-being other people's cared for you but with the advent of social media with the advent of big data with the advent of all of these uh, these platforms and, uh, and um, collections of repositories of data our privacy is no longer um, just self-contained within community it is observed it is scrutinized it is surveyed by unknown by unknown
0: groups by unknown but, people but is that a case Ian, of more data being generated or is it the case of that amount of data perhaps has always been available it's what we can do in terms of processing it so it's not necessarily right. it's not necessarily exactly. that we're, we're getting gaining more data we probably are but the more fundamental question is it's the fact that we can process it more uh, efficiently is up for the debate so i won't use that word but we can process it we can do with more more with that data than we've ever done before and that's that's the hot issue
2: yeah and that is very true that is exactly the uh i think one of my points and that and the reason i i in my book on face recognition and the uh the, the its impact on um personal images is that I have, I, I have tried to demonstrate in that book how privacy is no longer just a value, it's a property. Now, that goes back to the 18th century where a number of philosophers tried to demonstrate what privacy was. But we can we've got to see privacy as a property now because in the same way that, coming back to our, in the old data protection terms, alphanumeric data was data, it was property, similar to intellectual property. Well, our data, we have been digitized, digitalized, uh, and number crunched, if you like, and we, and we become, we have been informatized, to quote um, Irma, Va- Irma de um, uh term. We have been number crunched, so we're no longer, in terms of data, we are no longer people, we are subjects. We're no longer objects; we are subjects, and that's why uh, privacy in the in the West ought to be seen um, as a property, not merely a value. Um, and this is where the uh, where uh, the law in the UK has not been uh, uh, has not provided a framework for for such, because. Um, it's been said, you know, there, there hasn't been sufficient um, legal framework of jurisprudence to um, establish the right, uh, the privacy property right, shall we say, uh, to coin the phrase. Um, and that's the issue, is, is, we, is our, if our data is property, why isn't our privacy the same? Yeah. And if if companies like Google and Facebook can make money out of it, because we're the product, that also... Um, confirms to me that we, our data has value, our privacy has value, and value only is measured by its property terms.
0: Absolutely. Um, and, I think that- and so on. It, and it highlights a wider issue i think that not only affects this conversation but those concerning ais artificial intelligences and those forms of technology that are deploying ais uh, we can very often feel that we are at the mercy of the big multinationals uh, google's facebook's and so forth but actually they are and they are influential and what they're doing with our data is uh, uh quite remarkable but the fact is no no AI algorithm is as good as the data it has to work with and who actually is generating much of the data that they need to work with is us. And therefore, I think the greater recognition of actually the importance of data and the very fact it's our data, I think if we can raise awareness of that, then we do have a a fairly significant uh, contribution to make and contribution to give into this whole interaction and relationship with the technology companies that it's our data and i think raising awareness of that i think can be can the begin can be the beginnings of that empowerment that actually you know we have uh, we have a part to play and we have such uh, and have a powerful influence and can have a powerful influence on things yeah, moving forward right.
2: And i just wanted to, to clarify because i might have con- I, I, I may i wanted to just uh, be a little bit more a little clearer our data objectifies us we are no longer a subject in our own rights. It's our data that matters. Yes. Mm. Um, and, it's only, and if our data is all that matters, what's the point of us? Um, so, you know, there is an AI can can basically dehumanize us. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: mm. Think of, think of how, what, the, what Hollywood are doing now with, with the way that CGI works. You can now uh, create avatars. And you can reuse what is the Will the actors one day be made redundant because all you'd have to do is go and create uh, by animation, mm. um, uh, movement and so on, and use a very clever... Um, sort of uh cgi to create an illusion that you're seeing the real
1: person of course this and this so happened in um uh, rogue one the star Wars film part of the expanded universe where governor moff tarkin who was in the original trilogy um was reincarnated suddenly reappeared despite the fact the actor who played him had been dead for a good number of years and the same thing happened with uh um, connie fisher i think i think we played played princess Leia that yeah. The younger form of her was then sort of created using an avatar thing, um, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, this whole question of, of it dehumanizing us, of data, dehuman, of, of our worth and our value being located more in our data than in the simple fact that we're human and, and made in God's image. Matt, do, do, do you recognize and see that that threat, that challenge is just going to grow and grow and grow? Because let's face it, data is useful. Data is currency. Data is oh, I, I... I mean, it's so important in our society.
0: Absolutely, and I think uh, Ian may have something more to say on this. Certainly, in terms of biometrics and um tracking and tracing, obviously is where we kind of our launch point for this conversation. Uh, I think data will become even more important, and there is that danger uh, that it becomes more important than us, than our kind of the human side of things, that it's, we we are uh, dehumanized as part of that process. And um, yeah, I think there were interesting similarities, perhaps with earlier, not necessarily um, out of date conversations, but earlier conversations in bioethics around cloning and and, and duplications and things like that. We've kind of almost digitalized that process because we've got hold of genetics, which Mm. could be viewed as a form of data. And we can kind of almost, through uh, these new technologies that are coming through, uh, clone and uh, almost create virtual identities, as, as Ian has said. So, almost it, as is often the case in in this sphere of bioethics and emerging technologies, the same old questions keep arising but in new ways so I think there is a a, a fascinating similarity between what we've had discussions concerning cloning in the past now is actually affecting how data is transforming up for debate but transforming our identities
1: and a fascinating reminder as well I guess of how conversations that have happened in the past and lessons learnt or not learnt from the past can actually be really helpful in terms of shaping what the future is going to look like, which is, as, as a history student, it's something I'm always keen to bang the drum about. That <coughs> study, <excuse> me, <coughs> the study of history is not some stale, boring, dull topic, but actually incredibly important because, yes, times have changed, communities have changed, society has changed, but the fundamental realities of being human and human nature uh, don't change whatsoever. And they just relocate themselves and, and, and so on
0: absolutely and it touches a little bit about i just finished writing a chapter for a book on this i i I will refrain from going into great details but the philosopher martin heidegger kind of key concern was that we view everything uh in frame everything that we see everything as standing reserve effectively raw materials and technology is a way in which we can view everything as a raw material that we can uh, manipulate we can process and uh, we just think it's just another form that we can work upon. And actually, he was uh, uh, wanting to encourage us to view uh, uh, humanity in, in context, that technology can be a part of that context. But actually, it's so much more than just seeing each other as something that we can kind of work on, that we can kind of utilize in some kind of process in order to get to an end result. Mm. Uh,
1: just coming back, as we draw this to a close, I, I do want to just touch on... Um, these digital immunity passports, which I, I know we, we mentioned before we started recording the podcast and, and you, you and I, Matt, have spoken about it previously as well. Um, one of the realities with track and trace is that this is supposed to allow for these. and By the way, everyone, I am I'm am reading from Matt's very helpful notes that he sent me. So this is not my own knowledge at all which also gives me a get-out clause if any of this is wrong as well. This is Matt James's... It's all back
0: on me. Right. That's okay, right, all okay. back right. on you, Matt. Yeah, that's it. This, this wasn't yeah. in the contract, but there is we go. Not? Oh, is it not? Oh,
1: well, yeah, I suppose that's what happens when you're a consultant. Um, there are <laughs> loopholes that we can uh, we can exploit. So rather than lock down the whole population, the idea is contact tracing allows for the selective isolation of confirmed cases and those thought to have been either infected or at risk of being infected. Um, but you've got big challenges uh, with this because it's actually very difficult to kind of um, work out a radius of people who would have been in your vicinity, particularly if you're having a drink at the pub and so on and so forth. And can technology help with the process of contact and tracing? And you've identified three possible uh, systems. One is symptom tracking applications. Another is digital contact tracing applications, uh, the much heralded uh, app that was supposed to be launched from the NHS, and we've not really heard much about that in recent Months have we? And then finally, this idea of digital immunity certificates. Um, and so this could stream society based on an individual's health or risk of COVID 19 infection or transmission. Um, and it could allow for some citizens to do more and then for others to do less in, in effect. And you've concluded by saying that some countries like New Zealand have chosen not to go down the tech route, everything's done manually. Um, but that um, in the UK, the NHS app looks to be an Expensive failure. Um, and then actually, digital immunity certificate could be, could be the way that we move this thing forward. So are you saying that in the UK, out of all of the different technologies that could be used, you you think that digital immunity certificates, a digital immunity passport, if you will, could be the one that the UK chooses to pursue?
0: I think so. Given the context of our conversation thus far, I think it's going to be an equally hard sell, given how well the NHS app has, a track and trace app has not uh, particularly performed well. They can breathe in again and say the digital immunity passport is the next best thing. I don't think there's going to be much uh, and healthy buying from that. So um, given that context, I think an awful lot of work has got to take place. But I do think even though, admittedly, the World Health Health organization is strongly um, urging governments not to pursue either a physical or digital form of certification something like this looks likely to be a way of allowing people to move certainly in terms of cross-border uh, travel uh, in a way that will be in a, in a monitored way uh, in a, an effective way to be able to allow people to get from a to b and to have some degree of um certainty i use that inverted commas to know uh, whether they would be allowed to say access public transport or other services so forms of this i think could well work in a way that track and tracing apps proximity apps may not but i think in in all of this we've got to realize and one of the big things that's going to happen is being able to discern what actually is happening in terms of the technology for a covid pandemic and what are simply tools and techniques that are quickly being retooled and rebranded by companies to say look this will really help us sort it out because I think some things are out there that have been tested but have not really been tested with a pandemic in mind and so the public health agenda we come back to communication we come back to trust the public health agenda really has got to be the driving force for these technologies to evolve as opposed to we've got this technology surely this is going to help us with the Covid, so let's pursue that. We need kind of a little bit of a joined up thinking about actually it's a public health crisis, therefore let the technology evolve from that.
1: Mm. Ian, do you have any concerns about, about this, this digital immunity certificate, this digital immunity passport idea?
2: Well I think I the think um, if it's something that you're going to have on your phone and you're not carrying your phone, or you don't have a phone. How is it going to work? Not every, you know. We, I don't know what the t- uptake of numbers are for phones, but let's assume for a minute that, uh, as we know, that um, you get certain age groups are more um, uh, more prone to the severity of of COVID, and and though as we go up in age, it was seventy, it might be sixty, it could be whatever it is. Um, I don't know how many 60 to 80 year olds, should we say, have a mobile phone, especially one of the smart ones that would be capable of holding um, some kind of uh, chip, you know, kind of an app on it that would say that you've got this certificate. So what are we going to do? Are you going to wear a bracelet with a tag on it? Are you going to have, uh, you know, what would be the technology that would demonstrate wherever you are that you, are, you have this immunity certificate? I mean, if we take the idea that to go to certain parts of the world, you might need a yellow fever vaccination where you get a certificate, you take that with you, and you're only allowed to enter the country with that if you've got an up-to-date certificate. They check it at immigration. So are we to say, then, if you don't have a digital certificate, you'll have a paper one, and wherever you go into a social uh, situation like a shop, a church a place of worship, your barber or hairdresser, you take your certificate to say that you've got this immunity, either by a vaccine, uh, vaccination, or because you've got anti antibodies. Um, how's it gonna work where technology isn't, doesn't, isn't available to people because they haven't got the means? Mm. Um, these are the sorts of things that we need to overcome. And it wouldn't go beyond anybody's uh, thinking to think that some of the computer scientists are probably thinking, well, we, uh, 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 we we put devices in dogs, why can't we carry a chip in our wrist? Mm. You know, so in a way, we're back to this, this whole scenario of what freedoms are we going to give up to remain free? Yeah. Um, and, And I think that this is where the debate could be heading. What freedoms do we have to give up in order to be free? We talk about freedom of expression. We talk about freedom of movement. In the West, those are arguably inalienable rights, But we are moving to a society, towards a society, that means that our freedom is restricted by way of movement. Um, Our freedom of expression can continue because, well, there'll be platforms of doing so, hopefully. But if it's about freedom to to move around, but our freedom to uh, uh, consent to the process that we may or may not agree with, What are we? uh, Where are we heading with this? And how would this digital certificate work? uh, Given uh, the the for it to work well, it's got to be taken up by an awful lot of people. Uh, Absolutely.
0: Uh, no I, I agree entirely with what, what ian was saying there um and not only in terms of the technology side of things but it, it, we've also got to realize that immunity testing i think in some degree is going to be a key part of the strategy of the exit strategy i think it's been referred to as moving out of a, a pandemic but ac- um actually it's the accuracy of the form of testing that i think we also need to be careful of you know there's agreement around uh, and amongst the scientific community that um antibodies do exist in some form but there's no agreement as to the parameters so uh, the time constraints of immunity for example is it do we have immunity for three months or is it three years Is is it as accurate as we think at the moment so i agree i think some form of immunity passport will feature as some part of an exit strategy i would suggest at this stage but how well it's designed uh, is also reflected i think in not only in the technology but how effective you know is immunity based on what we know now um the uh, the time constraints involved and is an accurate form of testing to begin with and i think these are all unknowns that we have yet to explore but i think there is sufficient interest in this area that i think uh it's it, certainly that's not gonna this is not gonna disappear as quickly as I think track and trace apps uh will because I, I just yeah that that's been and gone i think uh, but in terms of immunity passports i think there's there's pro- there's progress being made um i think i might have mentioned it earlier but in, in estonia uh, a, 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 a private company i think um transferwise uh, is working pro bono on developing uh, passports in this way that have been tested in estonia to see their effectiveness uh, they're not wanting to run them out yet until there's there's some scientific consensus that actually the uh, covid immunity is something that it is viable to track and to, uh, to, to trace um so there's it's not gone public yet but there's certainly testing and things are certainly at that stage where it, this could roll on and develop further uh, if everything comes together
1: it's one of these great uh, topics that we could talk about more and more and more. But we will we will draw this discussion to a close. And I suppose one thing that did strike me just as you were speaking there, Matt, and, and Ian as well, throughout this whole conversation, is how difficult uh, this whole uh, business of governing the country in the time of an unprecedented global pandemic actually is. And so, Matt, if I could finish on, on where you started or earlier on, where you said, one thing that we can do, we should do, we must do, surely, is to pray Uh, for our government. Pray for those who are making these decisions. And I would would encourage you to go further. Pray for cabinet uh, ministers. Pray for uh, civil servants as well, many of whom will be working on uh, different projects to do with Um, digital immunity certificates and so on, and pray for uh, those working in healthcare, pray for Matt and and Ian and their work as well. So uh, what a a challenge rests upon our leaders. But um, this constant tension between individual freedom and the good of the community, um, I don't think we've managed to fully resolve that tension in in this care cast, but I hope that we have given you all something to think about. So we will be continuing with our new normal series in the coming weeks, uh, and you'll be able to watch this episode on uh, Catch Up, both on YouTube and also on our SoundCloud account on our website uh, as well. So thank you again so much to Matt, to Ian, thank you for being with me on the Carecast Mm -hmm. and I look forward to being with you you. again in a few weeks time. You've been listening to the Carecast. Remember to subscribe
0: to get the latest episodes and find out more about the work of care on care.org.uk. Care for what you believe.